I admire your luck, Mr. Bond. James Bond. This never happened to the other fellow. For your eyes only, darling. Whoever she was must have scared the living daylights out of her. What of you? Hello and welcome back to another episode of For Your Ears Only, Optimism Vaccine's ongoing James Bond podcast series. We've run out of Bond films, but we're not going to let that stop us. My name's Jack Eason. I'm joined, of course, by Jake Trapila. How you doing, Jake? Doing just dandy, Jack. How are you? I'm good. We're, we're, this is going to be a fun one. We've, we've kind of gone between some real bad stuff and some good stuff as we've veered off the Bond path. I'm starting to appreciate how consistent the Bond films genuinely are kind of hadn't struck me beforehand you know that they're, they're you know you might like them you might dislike them but honestly they're you know there's definitely some are better than others but uh it's not like you know when you put one on you're in for any real shock i think genuine generally but uh boy when you when you veer off that bond path and you're just looking for other stuff to fill the gap while you wait for no time to die to make it to cinema which may or may not happen soon ish we shall see uh, yeah, you, you really, you take your quality in your hands. You, you don't know what might come up. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, it's, it's just a testament to why I love Bond so much. I think it's the most reliable thing that we got as far as a franchise goes. Everything can kind of stand on its own and each film offers its own pleasures, so to speak. That, that's true. But, Although um, you, you could argue the, the Marvel Cinematic Universe has an incredible consistency to it, too. It's just that none of them are watchable. Yeah, it's got the consistency of like wallpaper paste. Um, you yes. know, it, it keeps keeps everything together, but uh, I don't want to stare at it for too long. <laughs> That's beautiful. So anyway, uh, what we're we're at right now, uh, this episode is we're we're veering off to the east to uh, Hong Kong to Stephen Chow's From Beijing with Love, yeah, which is very obviously a Bond tribute by the title alone, but I assure you throughout the whole film it will repeatedly uh, recall Bond elements in very absurd ways. For anyone who doesn't know, Stephen Chow is, of course, a, a comedian, first and foremost. Saw himself originally as like an action star, but wanted to be the next Bruce Lee, but I think when he got in there, it kind of became evident to him that he, he did not have the makings of the next Bruce Lee compared to many other martial artists. But he found out he was pretty good at comedy, so he turned his hand to that pretty quickly, and by... By around here, the mid-90s, this movie I think is 1994, by around this point he was really one of the biggest, if not maybe the biggest draw in Hong Kong cinema, Even maybe even bigger than Jackie Chan at this point. Wow. Uh, although Jackie Chan at this point was uh, venturing out into international territory, so he probably wasn't too bothered about that. Yeah, he, was, he was on his way towards rush hour and, and having lots and lots of Americans throw money at him, which is a very nice situation to be in, frankly. Uh, Stephen Chow would break later with uh, Shaolin Soccer and Kung Fu Hustle, um, on of which it kind of surprising they broke so big considering he kind of sacrificed nothing. Those are full-on Hong Kong films still in Cantonese and everything. So kind of an unusual unusual breakthrough point. Jackie Chan had to, had to kind of learn English to get in here. But um, yeah, for, from Beijing with Love is... Um, it's it's <laughs> this is a stupid movie, Jake. <laughs> but it's a fun kind of stupid. Like I very it's, fun. It's dumb, but you know what? I had a smile on my face, but pretty much from beginning to end. Uh, it's I've I've only seen the probably his Chow's two most well known films, which are Shaolin Soccer and Kung Fu Hustle, and I really greatly enjoy both, especially the latter. Uh, I think the, you know he's he's got a really He's got a great gift for co visual comedy. Uh, the jokes just keep flying in a mile a minute. It's a very, and it's like, it's less than like, I think it's like an 85 minute film, if that. It's just a very, yeah. it's a very fun, breezy action affair that uh, yeah, is, has a lot of love for the, uh, the James Bond franchise, as we find out. So I think uh, it does. Yeah, I think it's uh, I think it works really well. And I think as our as far as our offshoots go, this is probably one of the better ones. Oh, definitely. I think the filet might still be have to be diabolic, danger diabolic. But uh, this one's quite good. That's yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, Mario Bava, hard, hard to bet against the man, certainly. Mm -hmm. But yeah, no, this this is really great fun this is it's very 
there's a reason, I guess, why Chow's comedy was so successful across uh, kind of all of Asia, and it's because he does work in... He's very good, like you say, at visual comedy and very kind of broad, silly comic gags. He does a lot as well, I know, in Cantonese, uh, like wordplay and puns. Yeah. Those don't translate as well. They're much harder to translate. So to make up for that, he also has a lot of physical comedy and slapstick and, frankly, utterly zany things involving people shooting themselves in the arms and stuff. (laughs) It, it, It all goes pretty wild pretty quickly. I love this movie that it actually it opens with what I think is actually a really great gag. And I don't know, it, it's, it's, it's one that made me think, because I, I wonder, was it perceived as a gag when they did it? Because the film opens with not quite the James Bond theme, but incredibly close. I think the part they use might actually be cribbed directly from the Bond theme, but it, like, it moves away from the Bond theme a little later down the, down the path. But anyhow, it's instantly recognizable what they're calling with the musical cue, and it opens on a Chinese flag. And of course, if you watch the Bond movies and you see a Chinese flag, you instantly know you're dealing with the bad guys. That's like a no-brainer in, you know, the Chinese are up to nothing good, just like the Russians for, for the majority of the, the Bond franchise. Uh, so it's this really f- kind of instant head-scratcher that you have the Bond theme, you have the Chinese flag, and then, it, you know, kind of remember where you're actually oriented. But of course, this is a Hong Kong film, so... And this was three years before the handover of Hong Kong to mainland China. So there's there's kind of a strange strange tension there. This is a definitely a Chinese film and identifies with, with the Chinese audiences. Um, but 007 uh, is essentially a Chinese agent in this movie. And it's yeah. just sort of a, a strange reorientation uh, right off the bat in the very first shot. Yeah, and uh, like I was surprised at like how much of this opening sequence is really just is played straight for, you know, I was, I was expecting a comedy going into this but uh this is like not just like played straight but it's actually like this film gets incredibly violent yes it does like a lot of these the squib work that you see in this warehouse it, like it literally my note was it this would not look out of place and like john woo's hard-boiled because like guys are just getting gunned down left and right and there's and you know bond is like there's there's a lot of violence in the bond series but it's largely bloodless when it comes to gunning down extras yes um, but yeah here it's like everybody's just outfitted with so many squibs and it's it's it but it doesn't feel like it's a gratuitous in a sense that like the the violence is over exaggerating it's this just feels like genuine like oh if a guy gets shot this is what it would look like um it's, it's very straight faced yeah there, there's there's a it, it is funny and i guess it's it's that distinction between the hong kong film market and uh, you know, kind of what Western film goers are used to. Hong Kong is very comfortable with violence and with blood um, in their violence. And yeah, uh, From Beijing With Love is effortlessly more violent than any James Bond movie. Even Casino Royale, oh, yeah. when they're hitting him in the nuts in the chair. I mean, that's probably as brutal as the Bond movies get. This pushes quite a bit further. People literally lose appendages or there's big gouts of blood. Sometimes funny, sometimes not so funny. As we'll get into, there's a crazy sequence in the middle of this film, which is like, that seems really <laughs> gratuitously brutal <laughs> involving a child and his dad. Oh, God, yeah. Uh, which is kind of like, oh, okay, what? But again, classic Hong Kong. Hong Kong uh, has absolutely no issues. When when they want to create a bad guy, they will let you know they're bad. And they'll, they'll go all in on that. But the, the main thrust of this movie is a stolen dinosaur skull, a Tyrannosaurus or something. I'm not sure if they specify what kind of dinosaur, but it looks like a Tyrannosaurus. Mm-hmm. And its skull has gone, has been stolen by a man with a golden gun who also wears full body armor that's seemingly impervious to damage. And his, his golden gun is like a single shooter like like an old school like rifle pistol like it takes rifle rounds but it it explodes and blows through everything and that's also in hard boiled the the mad dog character has this like special just one shot reload gun that's right it's really powerful but you know, after like just like the golden gun it's only one bullet and one shot you have to reload that thing but uh yeah we we that's right mm-hmm and so we have like a classic Bond element that it's it's the opening sequence sees a, a secret agent being killed by the main bad guy, but that secret agent is not the key secret agent of the movie. Right? Yeah. This is a uh, this is like our alternate 007, the one who's 
who's basically currently in the field. He's been tasked to retrieve this uh, dinosaur skull. He's responsible for the deaths of like 20 plus men in this giant warehouse. Uh, and he's doing really well until he encounters the man with the golden gun. And uh, he hides behind like a dozen of these giant like shipping freight walls to as cover but the guy has this infrared tracker and with his special bullets he's able to shoot through all of them to kill the agent and uh thus putting an end to his mission and that's i think what takes us into the opening credit sequence yes the the fabulous opening credit sequence i really enjoyed this so a picture if you will the silhouette ladies of a james bond movie that you're quite used to um (laughs) dancing and writhing and whatever and uh, <laughs> things get out of hand this is true <laughs> ultimately and ultimately ending in in a silhouette bond having to murder one of the ladies in self-defense which is uh well he did kind of throw her across the he, the void of where they were dancing he did i mean it was originally his mistake which seems to be like a recurring pattern of the film Mm -hmm. which is a very stupid setup i mean it kind of sets the tone for this movie that you're going to get a lot of action certainly and i I, you know i think like the hong kong mode of filmmaking was you know action comedy is was really like their bread and butter Mm -hmm. um and they very much delivered on both you know just because it's a comedy the action that wasn't an excuse for the action to be less fully realized and vice versa just because there's blood spewing everywhere where people get shot doesn't mean you can't have riotous slapstick at every other moment right so and that's what we're treated to right after the credits we were introduced i think pretty quickly to our lead character played of course by Stephen chow right uh, who is in fact he he is he's pulled out he's not actually on active service he is a pork butcher mm-hmm uh, who is pulled out of the reserve pile seemingly completely at random because they don't have any other agents that could fit the bill. And his sole qualification seems to be that his descendants were heroic, uh, <laughs> not him. So, you know, I mean, which uh, could be a wry stab at the British aristocracy that Bond represents, but I think it's just a, 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 a weird suggestion that... Uh, our hero might have potential, but it doesn't look like it. And he's introduced to us uh, pretty much half naked, tending a, a street meat stall uh, with with a prostitute arguing that she ha- he hasn't paid her or paid her for, for services rendered. And he tries to like buy her off with some meat. He's also inexplicably drinking a martini at one point. <laughs> yeah, he's so he's outdoors. It's this like sweaty little like shop corner he's working on it's like the sun's out he's he's like from the waist down he's dressed in like all business slacks and and very nice shoes but yeah he's just wearing an apron up top and but yeah he's just casually sipping on a like a martini glass as bond would while he's cutting like these slices of pork on on his little stand and like his 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 best skill which is basically is his best asset throughout the film is that he's like a maestro with the the pork knife he's like can chop anything at seemingly at will and like he's he uses that more than a gun like he's very deadly with the with in the way of the of the pork sword so to speak yeah <laughs> i think he'd appreciate that that terminology uh chow never wanted to pass up on a weird a weird gag of course so yes he's he's uh seemingly not suitable for for the mission but he's brought in nonetheless and he's very willing to return he sees himself as a secret agent certainly mm-hmm. um, and I think this pretty quickly segues in there's two pieces of information I think that are revealed pretty quickly um, firstly he's brought to the Q lab for what has got to be one of the just most fantastic sequences of gags that I've seen in a while uh, playing frankly uh, on the gag already well established in the Bond universe where the inventions they're working on are utterly absurd they just up at one with having like a woman's hat that if water pours on it it literally just a bear trap comes down and severs the head which is like okay that seems really useful um, and God, what else do they have? They have uh, a, a cast leg, like a leg cast for a broken leg that's rocket power to allow you to kick someone behind you. 
just tremendously, tremendously useful. But my favorite, which is also probably one of my favorite gags in the film, is that the guy, the Q equivalent, he brings forth the solar-powered flashlight. That's right. And he dem- demonstrates with all the lights on in the Q lab, he can turn the flashlight on, and then he's, and then they go, what happens when you turn the lights off? So they shut all the lights off, and the flashlight won't work. And then he says, in this case, use this second flashlight to power the solar-powered <laughs> flashlight so that you can use it in the dark. Yes. <laughs> it's like, oh, that's brilliant. He's truly, uh, <laughs> yeah, the, the, the quartermaster <laughs> equivalent to our hero, and uh, not quite all together. So, so we have our cue laid out as he's brought in, but we're also introduced pretty quickly to kind of an interesting element within this, which is that the villain, the man with the golden gun dressed in a metal, is, is actually works for the exact same organization that our Bond character does. He's, um, he's actually high up in the same organization, so we, we have a kind of instant sort of, a, you know, kind of, uh, what would you call it, agency, leak, scandal kind of character. It's it's yeah. something that the Bond universe messes around with a lot as well. But um, honestly, they, they go in so quickly here, it almost it's almost like dizzyingly like, oh, of course the head of this agency is bad. It's almost like they bought their own, you know, press of like, villainous Chinese people in, you know, Western movies. It's, it's kind of strange, but it all gets ironed out nonetheless. Um, at this point, I, I don't know if, like, the, to, to recount the plot, essentially, um, God, you know, it, it, the plot doesn't really amount to much in this. Uh, there's a couple of leads, and our, our hero follows them up. He mostly meets up with a female contact immediately, who we learn is a double agent, mm-hmm. and they have an extended sequence where she is trying to kill him, but trying to find the right time, and being totally scuppered by just random stuff happening throughout and again another tremendous series of gags yeah she's uh she's the the villain's right hand right hand woman um you know classic bond trope where the like she's like the pussy galore equivalent where like the villain's main henchwoman eventually becomes turned and joins bond by the end but yeah there's a lot there's a great sequence that takes place in this apartment where she's trying to kill him using this gun uh, she fires the gun once into, <laughs> to, uh, like when he's got his back turned, and the bullet instead flies backwards and hits her in the shoulder. And she's he, she, he turns around and sees that she's bleeding, and she's like, "Oh my god, what happened?" And she says, "Oh, I was just testing this gun." And she he says, "This is the 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 backwards firing gun. It actually fires backwards." And so when he turns his back again, she turns the gun around and then <laughs> shoots it, and then it shoots normally forward and hits her in the other shoulder and he turns around and sees that she's bleeding again <laughs> he says what happened here this is the the backwards forwards gun it actually shoots backwards and then forwards and then she does like this kind of funny goofy little run while she slinks off into the bathroom to clean herself up it's brilliant it, it really established that kind of like manic energy of this film that yeah you know we, we've established that half the inventions of q branch are insane it's worth noting i mean they have an extended sequence where he's revealing all the top technology he's been given for the mission and most of the technology is that everything is a hair dryer or a razor like that's <laughs> like you know every object like all the things look like something else like a cell phone or or a hair dryer but in fact they're actually like if it's a hair dryer it's actually a razor or vice versa and just pointless nonsense so why wouldn't they make a gun that shoots backwards and then forwards in an alternating fashion that's perfect Oh my god, I started writing these down because he first pulls out an electric shaver and she says, that's a very nice shaver. And he goes, no, it's not a shaver. It's a hairdryer. And then she pulls out the hairdryer and she says, well, what is this? And he says, that's my shaver. And she says, well, what if you lose your hairdryer? And he says, that's okay. My shoes are also a hairdryer. And then he starts (laughs) trying his hair with his cordless shoes. Oh, I love it so much. It's it is yeah. very very silly, but of course this scene also is used to kind of in hindsight establish that he is actually he does have skills because he throws a knife and we learn later he actually threw that knife to perfectly cut a fly on the wall. Yeah, and um, it's it's kind of the, the film has a strange relationship with our hero in that he's he's obviously a lovable idiot, but he also has this like incredible knife skill as if you know as as a street vendor or something as you know, as a butcher, he actually has, you know, acquired very practical skills that can be used in this situation. And then everything else is just just kind of weird asides and jokes. It's it's a kind of peculiar setup. Yeah, and the fly reveal is actually pretty cool because, like, there's a target on a wall and he, like, throws the knife 
like seemingly like without looking and she turns and looks and sees that i thought you know i thought this was supposed to be played for laughs because the knife lands in like the upper corner of the wall far as far away from the target as it could possibly be um but then i think this is this kind of leads into the mall segment uh where he brandishes his knife and then we find out oh no he's actually like he can kill the shit out of anyone with this knife like he chops a guy's a guy's wielding a gun he chops his hand and gun in half with the same butcher knife that he uses to prepare the pork. He does not mess around. Yeah, we're not joking. It's it's intense. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's, so, so we have the, the we have the sequence in the mall, which has this, again, I like so much of this fits in with kind of my, my, you know, general understanding of Hong Kong movies. And it's something I kind of love about Hong Kong movies. They just have this kind of organized chaos to them. Like, even when you, you kind of know what the genre of the movie is, you'll things will right. emerge in ways you're not expecting. And sure enough, there's just a, a jewel robbery takes place in the middle of this mall, and our hero has to intervene. But but the robbery itself is insanely brutal. It is like it's like something out of you know a heroic bloodshed movie in the eighties. The the robbers just gun down some people. There's a child held as hostage. The father of the child is begging for them not to do you know let their his child go, and so they just murder his father in front of the child in a sequence that would appear in no James Bond movie in the West. If it did, if something like that happened in a Bond movie, it happened pre-credits, and it would be the thing haunting him for the entire rest of the movie oh yeah the father he's not just murdered like he's executed like he's on yeah. his ground <laughs> like surrendering and they just put three bullets into his his body with no remorse and it's part of the shock of the tone bad bad guys and and yeah it's it's laid out so so brutally and then of course they get their comeuppance but this is really the first time that our our hero um our hero by the way is ling ling chat is his name which apparently translates to 007 or 007 in cantonese um he doesn't really have a name beyond that so hence just referring to him as 007 because that is literally who he is um yeah intervenes and and shows off his skill by uh, in, in increasingly violent fashion right. uh, throwing many many knives at them it's uh, a pretty pretty grisly end to these guys but couldn't feel bad about it that's true yeah they, he just throws like a he keep and he keeps increasing like the amount of knives he's throwing at him like he throws one at a guy in an elevator and he reaches his hand behind his back and he pulls out two knives and he throws those and he got three knives and four knives and he just like every knife he can fit between his fingers he just like throws them in just a hurricane of blades and they, when the cops like open the elevator doors at the bottom to apprehend the suspects they're just they're like porcupines they're just riddled with blades it's it's great <laughs> a marvelous end. yeah what what i like about this the, the sequence actually because all of this it interestingly occurs right outside a cinema in the mall and if you're looking at it you can see posters for disney's aladdin mm -hmm. and for sliver the sharon stone sexy thriller from man the early 90s that was it was a interesting golden moment for those movies someday i'll watch them all again and see if they're actually any good but they seem pretty cool when i was a teenager uh, they've got poster for speed uh wolf the the mike nichols jack nicholson film uh they have a few others but it's really really wide range and what's interesting to me is that i feel like most of them are not from the same period i don't know how all of these if all these came out in hong kong at the same time because uh like, I think Aladdin is, like, a couple of years old at this point, but I'm not 100% sure in the years. But anyway, just kind of a nice... Uh, I, always, I always enjoy seeing movie posters in movies. It feels like it's very appropriate. I don't know if it was in any way cultivated or just literally that happened to be in the in the cinema in the mall where they shot this, if they shot on location. I don't know. Hong Kong's a bit crazy about that sometimes, but this looks like a real location. It's got that kind of, like, big expanse to it that it doesn't look like a set yeah i think by the 90s they kind of moved off of the back lots if you watch like a lot of 80s hong kong movies particularly martial arts movies um i guess it makes sense with martial arts movies the period setting but like they're pretty much they're all shot on back lots and mm -hmm. they were of course famously shot without sound because the back lots in hong kong were so noisy because they were literally filming films right beside other film sets uh, that sound was completely unusable they had that's why everything was post-dubbed which is why you never heard jackie chan speak with his own voice until sometime in the 90s same for like jet lee and everyone they all had 
every every voice was was completely just put in afterwards because on set the directors would be shouting and you could hear the movie next door anyway so just didn't work out i think by 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 94 or whatever when this came out they were probably moving away from that a little bit to you know kind of move on to the street and you know if you needed a mall why not shoot in a mall it looks pretty good interesting well i think we would also not just like the of the era like of movie posters and such but we should even mention that uh like this is our you know most blatant homage to the james bond franchise is that when he's preparing to leave and it like on the mission from his home he's got like all the james bond like films on vhs and he's watching moonraker as he's getting ready that's right and you know it's def just more of a blatant nod to the series than anything else in the film but like uh, i you know I, I kind of enjoyed i like seeing the physical media of the time of like the the hong kong covers of the bond films is pretty neat sure yeah it's it's kind of funny as well the idea that this guy who goes by 007 watches bond movies <laughs> you know they exist in the same universe it's kind of it's true who knows what they're doing but uh you know fair enough yeah so um i think uh just to kind of like move forward a little bit i think at the this point in the plot we uh we're like he's at the he's trying to break into the the fancy soiree using the the catapulting uh seat launcher isn't that is that what what it was like he's it's yeah it's it's a briefcase trampoline that's right. i guess and he just he opens the briefcase and it's basically it's just two sides with springs in between and you can aim the springs a little bit to barely adjust your your trajectory and of course he gets it wrong a few times because of course he would because if he didn't it would be the wrong kind of movie yeah so yeah he shoots himself off into obscurity a few times but eventually gets over the wall into this into this soiree the there's a great just to go jump ahead to the end credits but like there's outtakes that they're showing one that was deleted from the film when he oh yeah he launches the uh the uses the briefcase launcher and launches himself up in the air and she's looking around to see where he lands and moments later he shows up in a taxi cab like like he got shot across town and he just he had to drive back to the place yeah and and not only does he show up in a taxi cab but he makes her pay for it too which is just this fantastic addition it's really it's impressive how well that gag plays just silently with credits rolling over it because you know the setup it's it's actually really expertly deployed but it, i think it you know and it's a really good gag but it kind of shows like you mentioned, this movie's like 85 minutes long. Right. It's very compact in how it kind of like, it, they clearly, you know, measure out their gags and just felt how many worked in a certain scene. Yeah. So there's a really good hit ratio here. And clearly they had a really good gag and they figured they could use it in the end credits, but they figured maybe it was going, the gag was going too long in the in the movie so they didn't use it there um you know it kind of it does point towards a sensibility i think in in the film this is not you know as goofy as the movie is comedies are not easy to make you know they they require pretty judicious exercising of editing and so on um yeah often a lost art i feel nowadays for a lot of comedies are have really lost the plot on that because they're they kind of drag I, you know they, i think the the embarrassment porn element of modern comedy we could blame curb your enthusiasm to some degree or the office uh you know flip flop on on those guys which were great and really nailed it i don't know about the uk office more than the the us version which kind of traded in a little but not to the same extent but um mm -hmm. some of them lean into that so much i think at this point they're kind of like you know the the waiting on things that are uncomfortable that they just end up with these these movies that just drag on and on and on <laughs> But uh, that might be my own complaint. But this this movie just kind of moves really, really quickly. It just moves along. As we say, there isn't really the plot is not particularly developed. They're they're in search for the dinosaur skull. I don't even remember how they end up at this this uh, party. Um, That's true. But it's to meet some kind of a contact or other. What I do think is really funny about this party though is that they have like six women in bikinis in the party, and I swear to God, in every single shot. It's like those, this, all of the women appear in every single one of the shots, even when like it starts getting broken up by like gunfire, when uh, our double agent who's supporting 007 decides it's a good time now to try and assassinate him and tries to shoot him uh, from a distance and he doesn't know it's her shooting. Like every single shot is like the same women running past every single time. It's kind of, this kind of, it, it works, uh, but, but it's kind of funny. It just really seemed to like hit on. It's like they literally had like six women that was... That was it, and they just made it count fully. 
good work. Got to got to circulate your extras so that you got an interesting frame. Yeah, that's it. That's filmmaking one hundred and one. Um, <laughs> yeah, he. Uh, well, this chaos ensues. Uh, he actually gets shot in the leg, and um, f- like for a you know pretty light comedy, there's this extended sequence afterwards where like. Like, he's totally bleeding out, and, like, she has to perform surgery, and it's, like, it's... He's pretty much, like, Mr. Orange in Reservoir Dogs, like, that level of blood loss. <laughs> yeah, it's, like, and again, it's not, like, a level of blood loss that suggests this is, like, a cartoonish amount that he's gushing out, but it's, it is, it is, like, played realistically and played straight, and it's actually a rather lengthy sequence to, like, 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 we think he might be a goner just from this one wound that he has. They do. They just something that, like, Bond never plays into. You know, Bond's impervious. He'll get injured, but he's good to go for the next mission. It's per- but yeah, this is like, this is this sets him back a bit. Yeah, yeah. And it's particularly confusing. I suppose if it's not really a complaint because the movie doesn't make a thing of it. So you neither should you. But it is it is kind of funny that like earlier in the movie, we as we mentioned, his his female sidekick slash double agent shoots herself in both arms and one of the gags is he literally just gives her band-aids for it he's just like let's just put these on you'll be fine and that's it and she is fine in fact later on she uh she's wearing like a short-sleeved top and and there's not even a sign that she has been shot because it would no longer be funny at that point it was funny in that scene and then he gets shot in this scene and it's like a whole it's a whole thing true but of course it's a whole thing where he's about to die but he also for anesthetic throws on a porno <laughs> to to distract himself so it, you know it's kind of like it's serious but it's also absurd um and yeah so so he puts on he puts on a, a a pornographic movie to take his mind off of things while she's like digging around trying to trying to pull the bullet out and in this scene then of course learns because she autographs all of her bullets or initials all of her bullets uh he, he sees the bullets isn't pulled out and realized that she shot him. And suddenly we have our first, I guess, big dramatic revelation. Yeah. Or I guess our second big dramatic revelation after the fact that the enemies are within the Chinese government. The next one is he realizes that the woman who's supposed to be helping him all this time is in fact working for the other team. But she's, she's starting to be won over by him. They don't really lean too heavily into romance in this one. Um, yeah. But he, at the party, before just prior to her shooting him he does sing a song and i think uh kind of wins her over a little bit she's she's starting to be swayed that he's not just a a reckless goofy moron he's got some other characteristics but she still shoots him so obviously didn't win him over that much yeah yeah and then uh also we should mention that uh, after the like the soiree fight we do get a couple of other uh, henchmen on the scene arrive yes one guy is basically a, he's just he's basically jaws he's got steel teeth and he's virtually indestructible um and then i was there someone else that like there's another a female assassin that yes yeah. yeah yeah we've got the she her her main trait is not revealed until later but she literally has flamethrower boobs that's right yeah um, a bra that that shoots flames which i'm trying 94 is this I can't remember when was Austin Powers. When did that come out? Because we're in we're in very similar. That was ninety seven. Ninety seven. So okay. So they did it first. They they win this one. So you know, hard hard to work out. That's just where everyone's going. I'm sure there were other. There, I guarantee you, there's other Euro spy movies that did this prior. Uh, so it's it's not like it's new either. But yes, that's two other henchmen. The Jaws is super strong and super indestructible. Uh, and it's played actually by Joe Chang, which um, if anyone else has watched uh, Stephen Chow's uh, like Love on Delivery, which was released around the same time, which is a, another fantastic comedy. He plays the absolutely absurd uh, judo master in that and love rival to Stephen Chow. So he's kind of a fun, familiar face. He's less uh, prosthetic makeup uh, in that movie as he does here, though, with his weird teeth, etc. <laughs> well, there's a, there's a great gag after the, the bullet wound surgery. Uh, they're recuperating in the apartment and he like swings in and breaks through the window and lands up in the apartment and when he emerges he's got all of these shards of glass embedded in his body that stay stuck in him for the remainder of the scene but like obviously it doesn't affect him at all but it's just such a funny (laughs) visual gag coming especially coming off of like the realistic surgery it's like okay we're back to the the cartoon nobody feels pain anymore but yeah it's it's a great touch yeah he he looks like he honestly looks like the girl in suspiria that like first kill in suspiria (laughs) where the old glass roof just lands on her, which is played for total horror in that movie. And he's just, like, wandering around with those massive shards of glass sticking out of his face. Uh, 
man, this movie is wild. It really, like, it's so goofy and stupid, and yet it's kind of like, could you show this to a kid? I, I really don't know. That's why I don't have kids, so I don't have to make these calls. Yeah, <laughs> I think, uh, well, yeah, I, I think I think my personal opinion, children should be started young on these things and on horror movies, you know, just to kind of prepare them for life. It's true, desensitize them. <laughs> exactly, yeah, it's all fake. We're all having fun. This is... But yeah, this is a, I don't know if this movie is really readily accessible for anyone. I have a like a Korean Blu-ray I got from the Nova Media website a couple months back. Um, it looked pretty decent, but uh, I think, you know, as, as with all Hong Kong films, this could certainly use a use a nice release here in the States. Um, but uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I think a lot of Chow's work outside of, like we mentioned, the newer stuff, I think post right. Shaolin Soccer, a lot of it had managed to make it over. But yeah, a lot of his 90s stuff, which is ironically kind of the, you know, kind of the, the prime period for making his star in China, uh, is I, it's, it's available from Hong Kong with English subtitles of varying degrees of quality, but uh, you'll have to buy from Hong Kong or from Korea like you did. Right. Uh, not transferred over, which is strange. There's some um, Forbidden City Cop has made it to Blu-ray in the UK. Um, hmm. But yeah, not enough, certainly. Um, and with worrying news coming out of um, coming out of mainland China now that they're they're thinking about censoring or retroactively censoring Hong Kong movies that's pretty worrying um, because obviously there's a lot of crazy stuff that Hong Kong made that's awesome and uh, needs to be preserved and protected but even this movie has some pretty pointed gags against the Communist Party as I mentioned earlier I mean that our, our lead villain is a party member or a major government official which is pretty brazen like he's a a general right we find that immediately a general right yeah so 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 he's like you know pretty high up in the chinese army and that's that's you know uh pretty sta you know it's pretty standard messaging in the in europe and the u.s you can do that but you always have to assert that they're like you know just a bad apple or whatever right you know they do the same here but i think china has typically been much more careful about that kind of messaging um, also, later on in the movie, they have a, an absurd gag uh, where, where 007 finds himself about to be executed. And there's one of the guys who's standing alongside him waiting execution is a blind man who supposedly read confidential party documents <laughs> and is going to be murdered and is successfully executed. In fact, they do execute him quite brutally in another. This movie is just like that weird kind of zipping around between polars, you know, different poles of comedy and high violence, you know, but like he's he's clear he's blind. He couldn't read these documents, but he's being executed on the principle or just in case which seems like a pretty a pretty on the nose barb against the chinese communist party i'm i'm kind of surprised that gag is still in prints of this film to be honest because um, it's one of those things they also murder a martial artist uh, who uses all of his amazing martial arts and eventually is shot with a rocket launcher in a very crazy uh, gag but i don't i don't know if that relates back to early unified China banned martial arts movies um, and were banned martial arts media. Honestly, martial arts movies were in their infancy at that point because movies were in their infancy. We're talking like, I think, the 30s or 40s. Right. But, you know, martial arts stories generally were all banned because they were considered potentially... Um, would teach people to be violent and unrest and so on. And the, the, the burgeoning communist republic was... Uh, you know, hoping for peaceable times. So I don't know if it was within the same mode of, of that those two guys being murdered side by side were both jabs at Communist Party and ludicrous policies they have. Um, but yeah, it, it kind of an interesting one that that came in and kind of crazy that Chow uh, would do that. And it's worth mentioning uh, Chow directed this film with uh, Lee Lik Chi, who's another another guy he's worked with several times. Um Hmm. So, so it's a co-directing effort, but that both of them would uh, come up with pretty, pretty obvious jibes or jabs at the Communist Party three years before Hong Kong was set to be returned to mainland China. So I, I think Chow is uh, pretty brazen on this one, pretty ballsy. Um, and he's now, of course, Stephen Chow has been making movies in mainland China, huge movies, uh, ties in with our, our recent Choi Hawk 
uh, thing. I mean, they made the Journey to the West movies. Uh, Choi Hawk directed the second one of those, but uh, Stephen Chow directed the first and wrote both of them and is a producer for both of them. They're big special effects extravaganzas, just, you know, big, colorful, crazy blockbusters. They're Chinese films through and through mainland China. Yeah. So I guess it paid off. Maybe, maybe no one was paying attention, but it, it certainly struck me watching this. I was like, that seems a little risky for 1994. Like, maybe in 84 when, you know, 1997 was off in the distance but uh geez man that that could have been you up against a wall later but it all worked out so good for him yeah and i mean the film that he like i think it was like five years ago he had a film called uh the mermaid that like outside of the u.s like this was the like highest grossing film worldwide oh yeah so like yeah he's making not just Huge. big films but like just giant mega blockbusters that, that like yeah don't really have much play here but like elsewhere it's it's like most of the market is just in love with his work uh which which you know is great i think i think more people could learn to appreciate his films in the u.s yeah oh there are some of them are fantastic absolutely yeah no there, there's a reason disney want in on the chinese market um I think it was Wolf Warrior 2 or Wolf Warrior, one of them made like $875 million at the box office in China. It pretty much didn't get released anywhere. It's, it's, it's a ridiculous movie. It's the first one. I've only seen the first Wolf Warrior. It's ridiculous. It's it's this completely just harebrained, dunderheaded Chinese patriotism war movie about this great Chinese soldier <laughs> who has to fight against a bunch of evil guys. Like, it's just Rambo 2. <laughs> Every bit as fucking stupid as that movie. But yeah, like $875 million in one country, pretty much. No, like, this, this is is why Disney will edit the crap out of their movies to get them onto Chinese screens. They don't care. They don't care about your comic book faves. They just want that money. Um, so yeah, yeah, you know, and and they'll they'll try it out. I, you know, getting back actually that that execution scene to think about it. Stephen Chow's character also gets out of being executed by just brazenly bribing all of the officers. That's right. That's the the solution is he basically hands the guy a note and he's kind of like they all just wave goodbye and let him go. So there's all kinds of strange anti-authoritarian elements. You know, it, it's kind of funny because we talked about um, you know we recently did a series of Choi Hawk films and we talked a lot about Choi Hawk's anti-authoritarian elements. And they're certainly yeah. peppered throughout all of his films. But I'm not sure any of them were as brazen as this dumb comedy, you know? I, I don't know if any of them just involve, like, straight up, if you get in trouble with the Chinese officials, just give them money. They can all be bribed, you know? Uh, pretty pretty wild stuff to come out with. Yeah, definitely. Um, but, uh, all right, excellent. Yeah, so I think that kind of leads into the grand finale, which takes place in the uh, this giant, like, another warehouse where the man with the golden gun is suited up. Uh, he actually turns against his own guys, and the henchmen start fighting him for a bit. Like, he's using his his super bullets to kill the jaws character and like like just bits of his body are blown off into pieces but like he doesn't really seem to mind uh he keeps fighting him and then that's where the uh the the flamethrower brazier comes into play and then the female agent starts starts blasting at him but it's kind of like a villain free-for-all before uh chow steps in to finally bring down the man with the golden gun um but uh yeah it's it's very much like in in the vein of the opening sequence where it's like just this very nice bloody fight sequence where extras are gunned down and there's a lot of just chaotic flips and people exploding and limbs just getting blown off with abandon but uh, i you know it's it's a it's a pretty fun and fitting end to this crazy movie i think absolutely yeah no i i think um we mentioned before like steven chow i think he has a real love for action films. I think, you know, he, he really originally wanted to be an action guy and it just, it wasn't working. Like, he trained in martial arts, but I think at a certain point he just realized, you know, it's not enough to train at martial arts. you got to, like, you've got to have a physique or a kind of a... Uh, persona on screen and then you also you just have to train harder than everyone else like it's really hard to crack in there as you know we know from all the stories of like Jackie Chan and Sammo Hung's training and borderline child cruelty etc you know I mean these you know to get in to get into that echelon is really difficult everyone wants to be in there everyone wants to be the next Bruce Lee very difficult and I think Stephen Chow developed an appreciation for how difficult that was which means that his action sequences mm -hmm. are surprisingly robust and well planned they they do have a genuine credentials they're not just thrown in like you know jokes like his, you know and I think that's one of the things that really is really lovable about his films and it's 
in here or in a film like I mentioned, Love on Delivery is a really great like um, martial arts comedy of his. Is that his? He really integrates kind of great jokes into legitimate fight choreography and action choreography in a way that is very unusual. He can't do it like Jackie Chan, who's like in the thick of it. He's he's just because he's not Jackie Chan. That's the whole point. Uh, he's, he wasn't going to be the next Bruce Lee kind of figure. But he has a way or a vision and an understanding of how all the tropes of martial arts and action movies work. Like you, you mentioned, this looks a lot like John Woo at points. I mean, absolutely. Stephen Chow has clearly watched a bunch. Yeah. In fact, Stephen Chow was in A Better Tomorrow as like in a, as an extra. I think you know he's he's been on the set of a John Woo movie so like he 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 knows this stuff and he really invests it with that kind of same energy but there just happens to be jokes in them so you know there's some crazy stuff in here you know we, uh, the Jaws character gets his arm blown off he then gets completely blown up and it's like this real big physical full body explosion and then he just cuts into that to just the teeth chattering that's all that survives and it's like you know it's got all the action parts and then it just has a joke at the That's end right. and it, it really it's just very satisfying it's really fun it, it's kind of um it's a little bit rare i think to see uh, such a broad comedy that takes care of the other details as much as this one does you know there, there's a tendency you know like in in the the western movie it kind of it reminds me because um came a little bit later than this but i guess like scary movies were the, the late 90s when those kicked off uh, and kicked off an unfortunate wave of terrible comedies um and all of them were like spoof like all of them were genre based oh, God, you know yeah. they were like the horror movie or the teen comedy movie or the disaster movie but um all drew that kind of comparison again to like the Zucker Brothers and so on, which made, you know, much better movies, much funnier comedies. And I think they have a similarity with Stephen Chow uh, that distinguishes why their comedies work, where this wave of like 90 spoofs didn't, which is that they have a genuine affection and understanding of the films they're working in, the genres they're working in. And they they work to recreate the same kind of mechanics and then just insert the jokes into it. Um, whereas the other ones are just like, you know, oh, I Twilight's stupid and we're smarter than Twilight. Here's 17 of the laziest jokes everyone's already made about Twilight. And it's like, great, that really sucks. I wish you would stop making these. And eventually they kind of did, I think. Or if they do still make them, you don't have to ever see them anymore. They're yeah, there's no there's no market for those. They're kind of they're buried in like the DTV piles or I guess VOD, whatever you want to call it. They must be in the lowest rungs of the lists of Netflix that I've never even ventured into. Yeah. Um, but yeah, and I think that's just also with with Stephen Chow's films, at least with the ones I've seen, is that I mean, not only are they great at making fun of what they're making fun of, but they also hold up as their own genre of that film. Like Kung Fu Hustle yeah. is a pretty decent martial arts movie. Uh, it's, you know, absolutely uh, half the time it's running around like a Looney Tunes uh, animation, <laughs> sometimes literally. But uh, yeah, when it gets down to business, it like really takes things seriously. And I think I think it's very it's a very important distinction with, you know, like with a spoof film, like the ones you mentioned, just the latest ones. It's just a bunch of the latest pop culture references that are just thrown in together first. And then a loose story is wrapped around it. But um, I mean, chow, I mean, this, I mean, the story here is is like <laughs> they're trying to recover a Tyrannosaurus Rex skull. But uh, other than that, it's you know it's it's a it's a decent spy movie, but uh, it's got a lot of great action in it, and um, and yeah, Chow holds it com- together completely well. They're, they're trying to recover, in fact, a friendly Tyrannosaurus. There's one of the, the zaniest gags early on in this is where they're talking about the the missing dinosaur skull, and he asks him, you know, have you seen Jurassic Park, which obviously had just come out. Speaking of you know referencing things, there's I guess there's a question of like referencing movies people will still be talking about in a few years versus you know the bond movies the bond franchise is clearly time tested jurassic park was huge it was probably a safe bet you reference that people will still know what's going on whereas i feel like a lot of those other 90s spoofs in america are referencing like 
like keeping up with the Kardashian episodes that no one really remembers the specifics of anymore. Right. But anyhow, he mentioned he mentions Jurassic Park and they talk about how the dinosaurs and that are very dangerous. And there's this great joke aside. It's like, oh, this is a Chinese dinosaur. He'd never eat children. <laughs> this is like this strange, <laughs> like distinct distinction of, you know, like, ah, oh, no, that's crass American dinosaurs would have done that. Just another just absurd conversation in a movie full of absurd conversations. Uh. American dinosaurs. Excellent. Well, uh, <laughs> is there anything else to uh, to cover with uh, this movie? Other than I, th- I think we would both just heartily recommend it. Oh, 100%. Yeah, no, this is, uh, you mentioned it earlier, the the only problem with these, honestly, is that they're kind of hard to find uh, in the West. Uh, you, you can obviously hit download sites. That might be your best bet. I'm, for, for From Beijing With Love, I don't know if there is a good dvd release this movie that isn't years and years old i got a dvd copy of it god nearly 10 years ago and i'm pretty sure it was sourced from a chinatown district somewhere like it's it's still of that kind of uh that vintage and that sourcing so i i don't know if that's improved anywhere and it, it surprised me because these really work really well this is a really popular movie so uh, you know a really it really caters to Western sensibilities because it's so broad and obviously it's it's referencing Jurassic Park and James Bond. This is not stuff that Westerners don't understand. So I'm kind of hoping Forbidden City Cop getting a Blu-ray release in the UK recently might mean more Steve and Chow might filter through because it it's about time. A lot of these movies are really, really fun. And you say, I heartily recommend this one. It's really, really great if you can find a copy, which the internet will help you. But if you're not... Uh, if you're not good at that, that's that's kind of an unfortunate roadblock. If you're just, you know, want to hit a streaming service or something, I don't think this one is on any of right. them. Yeah, and, you know, if, if you've been following us on Twitter, uh, which we'll give you our handles in a second, but uh, Jack's been a saint at sharing some rare and hard-to-find Hong Kong movies this year. And uh, if you haven't already checked out, you know, our, our main podcast feed has uh, episodes that we've done discussions on, the films of Johnny Toe and Choi Hark. That's uh, all at uh, optimismvaccine.com. So be sure to check those out as well if you want any more discussions on some great Hong Kong cinema or really just great cinema. I mean, it's we've we've sort of embarrassed ourselves with riches uh, the last couple months um, or or bad cinema because yeah. we did that Stephen Paul episode. <laughs> that, right, I was hoping not to mention that. But yeah, we did. We, we should stick with Hong Kong. Yeah, stick with Hong Kong cinema. I think that's uh, I think that's what we should rebrand uh, Optimism Vaccine is. Uh, if you want to tell Steve that, uh, you can uh, email us at optimismvaccine.com. Tell us if we should become a full Hong Kong cinema podcast. Uh, I, for one, would go for that. Um, I can also be found on Twitter at, uh, at Jake Tropila, T-R-O-P-I-L-A. Uh, Jack, where can the good people find you? you? You can find me on Twitter at Real Jack Eason. So Real J-A-C-K-E-A-S-O-N. And yeah, I'll, I might try and throw up some links to some of these movies because, like I say, I'm not stepping. I don't feel like I'm stepping on anyone's toes because no one's releasing them. If anyone wants to release them, uh, I will buy a copy day one. I promise. I'm, I'm all in for this. Yeah, definitely. I mean, we would love to see more work like this expanded and shared for other people to get um, if they're not uh, particularly internet savvy. But, uh, well, excellent. Is there uh, anything else that uh, you had uh, to share with us, uh, Jack? No, I, I don't think yeah. so. Just we're, we're waiting on no time to die. And in the meantime, we will return. We've got a couple of more episodes lined up of Bond-adjacent material. So, yeah, tune yeah. in. Well, thank you very much, anyone. The For Your Ears Only podcast will return. 